Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 237. The weird thing about cryptocurrency is that in some ways, it's it's allowing people to invent money as if we don't already have that. And they get to do it in, in absence of a lot of the rules that we have around like inventing a money. And, you know, has that been uh, like permitted as long as it has in the regulatory and legal environments in which we operate because it's technology and like the technology is like distraction glitter from the fact that people are just inventing their own money and like for a while there we're maybe inventing their own money and not paying appropriate taxes on it right like well security ledger podcast is back after about a month's hiatus and it's great to be back with you In this episode, the last year was a big one for cryptocurrencies and so-called decentralized finance, or DeFi. On the one hand, cryptocurrencies gain mainstream acceptance and adoption. The halftime during this year's Super Bowl was peppered with ads featuring celebrities pimping cryptocurrency exchanges like FTX, Crypto.com, and Coinbase. But 2021 was also a big year for hacks and attacks on decentralized finance. In fact, of the 10 largest cryptocurrency hacks of all time, three have occurred in just the last 18 months. And that doesn't even capture the slew of small-scale hacks and compromises of cryptocurrency platforms, exchanges, and individual crypto wallets. If cryptocurrencies based on the blockchain are destined to supplant sovereign currencies based on the backing of central banks and globally accepted rules of commerce, they'll need to prove that they're at least as secure. And yet, if recent history is any guide, Many DeFi applications and platforms suffer from the same problems as other web applications. Exploitable software holes, vulnerable protocols, and rampant supply chain vulnerabilities. In this episode of the podcast, we're joined by someone who has been thinking long and hard about this problem. Jennifer Fernick is a senior vice president and global head of research at NCC Group, and a founding governing board and technical advisory committee member of the Open Source Security Foundation. In this conversation, Jennifer and I talk about the promises and challenges of DeFi systems and whether attacks like the recent hack of Ronin and Poly Network are simply growing pains in a fast emerging DeFi ecosystem or fatal flaws that will kneecap future efforts to build a viable system of decentralized finance. To start off, I asked Jennifer to tell us a little bit about herself and the work that she does at NCC Group. Uh, My name is Jennifer Fernick, and I'm the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Research at NCC Group. Jennifer, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell the audience who might not have known of you a little bit about yourself and the work that you do there at NCC Group. So I've been at NCC Group for about three years. I'm the global head of research there. Um, NCC Group is a large publicly traded security consultancy. Um, So what I do is I oversee our global security research program. So we publish around 250 research publications a year across all kinds of um, security and vulnerability research. Um, Outside of that, I'm one of the founding board members of the Open Source Security Foundation. Um, But my background is actually as a cryptographer. I trained um, working on quantum safe cryptography in grad school. And then I worked formerly in a bank um, as an architect and later kind of overseeing a large security team. Um, So uh, cryptographic security and finance is kind of my specialty. So let's let's talk a little bit about DeFi, decentralized finance. Like how 
how should people understand this world? I think most people, well, I don't know about most people, but probably most listeners to this podcast are familiar with cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrency wallets, you know, some of the exchanges. But when we talk about DeFi as, as a sort of ecosystem, um, what, what's in it? I think this is really broad. So, I mean, when we think about this ecosystem, we have to consider um, not just like the, you know, thousand or more cryptocurrencies out there, but we have to think about the constantly new like exchanges and projects and platforms and um, increasingly intermediaries. So, you know, when you have a thousand different cryptocurrencies and um, all of these ecosystems that spring up, you have this um, complex mediation that has to occur at some point between when they talk to each other and where value is recognized. So like as security people, we can start looking at that and saying, okay, so when we when we analyze some security architecture, we not only just have to think about those individual components, but really, especially at those edges, at those interfaces between these things. And I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the ecosystem growing right now. Um, So when we think about DeFi, there's like this spirit of decentralization and independence, although, you know, that's been called into question recently a little bit, but um, we have to think about how there's all of these kind of silos that spring up that eventually are somehow supposed to talk to each other in, you know, the horrifying thought of like an internet of blockchains. Um, So we have to think about all the ways that Vulns can spill out of that. Right. So, I mean, you mentioned blockchain. Blockchain is obviously the kind of foundational technology that enables, you know, cryptocurrency and a whole bunch of other things, Um, this kind of decentralized ledger that in general is thought of as being highly secure, or at least highly resistant to tampering. Um, I often think that people sort of generalize this notion of the blockchain and just assume that anything associated with with you know blockchain technologies is inherently secure um and and as we know that's not the case but um i guess one one question would be um what role does the blockchain play in all of this and i guess a, a point worth making is the blockchain is not backstopping the security of these decentralized finance uh systems and applications No, not at all. I think that's such a dangerous belief that's out there. And it's a ubiquitous belief amongst like the Web3 and like cryptocurrency evangelists is that blockchain is like intrinsically and universally secure, Um, which isn't true because like there's a bunch of blockchain specific security vulnerabilities. And we published a white paper on this a couple of years ago, although there's even more of them now. Um, But like decentralized systems often have the same um, kind of flaws that we might see in regular systems. So um, you know, weak passwords and insecure dependencies and application and protocol level flaws and all of these different things. But like on top of that, like the the biggest misconception that I think is really damaging um, people making informed choices is that somehow cryptocurrency is like magically more secure because it uses cryptography. And like as a cryptographer, I would say, oh, wow, that that is definitely not the case. Um, So there's a bunch of reasons why that why that's true. Um, the first one is that cryptographic implementation is really hard. Um, so we know that there's a lot of vulns in software, but the place where even more vulns happen to occur is software that is supposed to be a cryptographic implementation written by non-specialists in cryptographic implementations. Having you know random developers that are like getting into this space, or even highly skilled developers, right? This isn't even necessarily a slight to any specific developer. Even some of the best developers in the world um, that are working for like trillions 
trillion dollar companies are still shipping software with memory corruption vulnerabilities in it. So I don't think we get to pretend that like software is um, by default secure. And I think it gets worse when we talk about the implementation of cryptographic protocols, because there's all kinds of edge cases and things we have to think about, you know, side channel resistance and this kind of thing that regular developers through, you know, the education systems and so on that we have are not very well versed in. Like another reason that cryptocurrency is not magically secure because of cryptography is that cryptography is only really powerful when you apply the right type of algorithm to the problem you're trying to solve. So I, I've had a lot of people like back in my banking days and even now that will say things like, you know, it's secure because it uses crypto, it uses cryptography, it, it uses hashing algorithms and stuff, you know, AES, you know, we have, and they're just kind of naming off like various ciphers that perform yeah. different types of actions. And like my default, like I'll print it on a t-shirt, hashing is not encryption, you know, hashing gives us integrity, not confidentiality. And I think that the lack of nuance that is often applied to security analysis when people are kind of generically saying it uses cryptography, so it's private and it's secure, is such a, a broken premise. And that it really is about the nuanced application of the right crypto primitive to the right problem. And we're not necessarily getting these things by default. You know, as I mentioned, there's other layers of analysis and components of like a decentralized finance system above and beyond and separate from the cryptography itself, which can go wrong beside the cryptographic algorithm. And then I think on top of all of this, like one of the exciting things for many people about decentralized finance and cryptocurrency and all of this is the idea of smart contracts. So like things that you can, you know, encode that uh, under certain computational conditions, you know, these resources will be allocated to this other entity. Um, and all of this is way more exposed than we have in traditional systems design. So like you're applying on, you're relying on the cryptography, the cryptography may or may not be properly imp implemented or applied. Um, and then you're like letting all of this sit openly on the internet without a lot of the more traditional kind of systems and like layers of protection that we normally see. So it's all very close to the surface. You know, it's very easily exposed. And, and when there's single software flaws in these platforms, um, you know, exploitability of, of those flaws goes from, oh, maybe you can get into a network or pivot within a network or elevate privileges. It instead becomes like, oh, maybe you can steal like half a billion dollars. <laughs> and suddenly, yeah. you know, those, those are very expensive flaws. Um, and then another thing that I think is often under-considered is that the security of a cryptographic algorithm isn't static over time. Like the history of cryptography is of ciphers that seem secure getting broken over and over and over again. Even a lot of the things that make it into the standards, they're good for a long time because like a bunch of cryptographers have looked at it and we're relatively confident because we haven't found any bugs, but like very few of them have rigorous proofs of security. And like as computational abilities, even just like regular classical computers get better and better over time, um, cryptanalysis speeds up, right? Because you can throw more computers at it per unit time. And sometimes there's algorithmic advances as well to break the crypto. Um, but then on top of that, we have this whole like paradigm shift when we have 
you know, infinitely scalable quantum computers, that suddenly a lot of the assumptions we made about cryptographic security, even right now, even today, what is secure is um, dramatically broken because it's a, it's a paradigm shift algorithmically in terms of the cryptanalysis. So there's so many reasons why like cryptocurrency is not magically secure just because it uses cryptography. And I think right. that's really underappreciated. Well, and we, we've seen, I mean, just in the time I've been writing about cybersecurity, you know, you've seen, you know, every few years, it seems you know, the NSA or whomever is sort of saying to organizations like, hey, if you're using, you know, X algorithm, you might want to start deprecating it because we really don't consider it to be, you know, secure, or at least it's not going to be secure for that much longer. And you should, you know, upgrade to a more robust, you know, um, uh, encryption algorithm. So, and that's all just a factor of, you know, as you said, increased compute power and, and so on. So yeah, we're, this is kind of a, a an evolving um, ecosystem, right? Yeah, and I think that's underappreciated because a lot of these blockchain projects, they're putting really sensitive things, be it assets, be it PII, mm. whatever it is, yeah. in a blockchain. And like the whole point in like decentralization and blockchains is everybody gets a copy. Like that's the nature of decentralization. Um, and that's fine as long as your cryptography is secure. But the history of cryptography is nothing is secure forever. Yeah. What what types of when we look at some of the attacks that have taken place on you know exchanges and what have you what types of attacks are we seeing is this pretty similar in terms of the types of attacks you see on any um you know web-based or cloud-based application or platform uh similar types of vulnerabilities similar types of attacks I mean, there's there's such a range of different ways that things can be attacked. So um, we see attacks on wallets. And even within those wallets, is it an architectural choice? Is it a software flaw? Is it um, a dependent in a library or something like this? Mm -hmm. Is it... Um, credential you know, theft, you know, right? Sure. Yeah, credential theft. Is it, you know, malware that somehow dealing with some intervening system to obtain credentials or to compromise mm -hmm. some, you know, mm -hmm. there's so many ways that we can look at this. So, I mean, to even try to enumerate what they would be, I mean, I think it would take up more than our whole episode just to try and list, like, what are all the different ways that one could theoretically and people have actually attacked cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, so, like, if we ask ourselves this question, like, is it getting worse? Um the data would say yes, right? So if, you know, there's all these different kind of leaderboards of, of terrible things that have happened in cryptocurrencies and like, what is the biggest attack? And, you know, um, they're called, they're called listicles, Jennifer, in the, uh, in journalism circles. <laughs> I, I should know that I'm a millennial yes. and everything. Yeah. Yes. Listicle. They're, listicle. It's a listicle. List plus article listicle. <laughs> If, if we look at these, right, um, some of the rankings, one of the ones I looked at um, this morning, there were like 15 top attacks. It kept going because there were hundreds. But like yeah. in the top 15 um, by dollar value, 14 of the 15 were un on unaudited platforms. So we don't know if there was mm. any third party security analysis. Mm. Um, all 15 of them occurred in 2021 or later. Wow. Um, two of the largest ones were over half a billion dollars or um, half a billion dollars each. Um, and if we look at the like ubiquity of types of, uh, and range of types of attacks, uh, it's different every time. I mean, it's the same, but different, right? It's right. the same kind of software flaws we've seen forever. There's also new ones that we can add on top of that. But even getting the fundamentals right is very hard. Um, and I think that as, the, as these 
you know, there's all this money in the ecosystem. As of six months ago, there was over $3 trillion in this ecosystem. Um, as people, you know, get past or want to expand upon the speculation that we've seen in the last year or so in cryptocurrency and want to make it actually useful or like cash it in for things or like realize some of the utopian goals, mm-hmm. these things have to start talking to each other. So we're seeing this and I would predict like one of the most interesting things we'll see in 2022 and into 2023 is like um, these places where uh, there's different layers being added or different communications or interact interaction protocols happening mm-hmm. um, that compromises are happening there because those edge cases, they're really hard to audit too. So I think that, you know, not only is the volume by dollar value and by number of attacks and by range of attacks increasing, um, the total attack surface of types of possible attacks is growing as well. And And it is too bad. I mean, but if you had money that you wanted to hold on to and protect, it would seem that the traditional finance system at this point has a lot more safeguards in place. Is, is, is that uh, an exaggeration or is that an overstatement? No, I think that's very true. I mean, not only are there, you know, all kinds of regulatory pressures, including around cybersecurity in traditional finance, um, but there's also greater investment. I mean, um, you know, major U.S. banks have gone on the record saying they spend, some of them spend a billion dollars or more a year on cybersecurity. And I think that that has come from, you know, lessons learned over hundreds of years as, you know, banking has evolved, right? Because banking has changed even within traditional banks. Um, There's been a lot of lessons learned. And I mean, banks themselves are fundamentally risk managers. Um, They're not going to spend more on something than it's worth, or they're going to try not to, right? And cybersecurity, the reason the spend is so high is because it's worth it. Because the banks know that, you know, the cost of doing business online is to take on the risk of doing business online. Um, Part of mitigating that risk is introducing like robust security controls and things like that. So banks are making those investments. And sure, banks are also acknowledging that there's a certain amount of loss and theft that's going to happen. And that may be, you know, those numbers may be astronomical um, to the outside world, but they manage it as as a part of their risk portfolio um, with cybersecurity controls that are proportional. And I mean, I don't think we have this maturity of thinking about risk in general in the cryptocurrency space. And it's kind of like some some of the maturity of cybersecurity in some of these is like non-existent. It's like, oh, it's secure because it's cryptography, right? YOLO, haha. Um, some of them are very, some of them are very mature. Though, right, like there's exchanges that have hired, um, like some of my former colleagues that are that are doing really interesting things. And there's certain cryptocurrencies that like have world class cryptographers on staff, and like so it's it's a very unequal ecosystem. And there's there's all it's very patchy, right? There are definitely places doing some really good things, and there's places doing some terrible things, and there's a lot of in between. But it's really hard to evaluate, even as a security practitioner, because it's moving so fast and there's so much interdependence. Um, so I can't even imagine for like a non-security practitioner how you think about like where you're putting your money. And I think that there's a lot of things that we take for granted um, that come kind of for free um, in a regulated industry like banking. Um, that that were that consumers, right? Like general consumers who have just tried to kind of, you know, put a little money in the cryptocurrency market, see how it goes, that are thinking of this as like traditional investing in a lot of ways. And they're not, right? Because especially if they're managing their own wallets and they have to like take care of a private key. And, you know, this is a very new thing for a lot of people. So it's, it's complicated to think about the ethics of that and like how 
how much control individuals should or shouldn't have and how informed that risk is. And, and it's very messy, but yeah, I guess if we track this all back there, there was, you know, one day many years ago, a utopian vision that some people still believe is possible. Some are kind of realizing that we might be relearning the lessons of the past um, in this new space. Um, But I think, I think it's really important. We're we're at the kind of stagecoach robbery phase of, That is a really good way of putting it, yeah. yes. <laughs> Even then, I mean, if you think about robbing a stagecoach, there's like many steps to that, whereas like the attack chains on cryptocurrencies, it, it's kind of, it's a very short attack chain. So <laughs> it might even be worse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, you wanted to hold up a stagecoach, like, you know, you, you could get shot. I mean, it was dangerous, right? Just looking, kind of scanning some of the recent, you know, incidents and, and kind of the causes um, you know, a couple things jump out to me. Um, there was a very large uh, incident reach recently um, involving a, a cryptocurrency kind of uh, exchange platform uh, that involved, you know, a theft of uh, hundreds of um, millions of dollars of cryptocurrency as a result of um, theft of uh, private keys uh, that were then used to access the wallets. Uh, another recent um, attack involved exploitation of a vulnerability in a protocol that was used, again, on a, on a kind of proprietary exchange. I mean, one of the problems to me seems to be that there is so much diversity that there isn't really a kind of equivalent of like SWIFT or something in the cryptocurrency world. And so there are a lot of different proprietary, you know, kind of bespoke platforms and protocols and stuff out there being used and and tons of vulnerabilities, as you'd expect. But that that is really making it very advantageous for attackers versus defenders. Uh, Yeah, I think so. And I mean, if we think about uh, these kind of protocols between exchanges, there's this notion of heterogeneous blockchains where it's imagined that like all of these things could talk to each other and there starts to be an interplay and like the ecosystem can evolve without necessarily having like a centralized standardized view of the world. Um, And that's very utopian. And like, maybe that's possible. I mean, there's a lot of, if we think about the technology we have now, like just you know, independent of cryptocurrency, just the way that the internet and like enterprise systems have come to evolve. Um, there's been a lot of like commingling and convergence and things like that. Um, but I mean, it's, it, it'll be an interesting question to, to think about whether this is something that people can agree on in a central way, or if it's something that's going to kind of evolve through the ecosystem. Um, because there's also a lot of ideological conflicts between like centralization versus decentralization. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we think about that, I mean, I imagine that there's going to be a resistance to standardization in general and like agreeing on certain kind of protocols or, you know, parameters or things like that. And I wonder what that fragmentation will do in terms of security, but, you know, maybe it enables innovation. I don't know. Maybe it enables just tons of vulns, maybe both. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we have heard, we have heard like the, the, I think the Federal Reserve and other central banks sort of start to rumble and make noises about, you know, maybe we should be, you know, regulating these um, cryptocurrency exchanges and this, this DeFi um, ecosystem uh, more than we are or, or just regulated at all. Um, do you think that that's likely? And do you think that that type of oversight would necessarily translate into better security? 
it really depends what it is. I think regulation is very likely. Like we've heard rumblings from the SEC and many other mm-hmm. um, regulatory bodies that need to get in on this somehow. Mm-hmm. Not least because of if we think about how cryptocurrency enables ransomware payments and um, you know the concerns around money laundering and terrorist financing. Like mm-hmm. there, somebody's you know these organizations feel a very strong need to get their arms around that. And, and I understand that. Um, so I think we'll see some kind of regulations and increasing regulations around some of these things. How effective they will be depends a lot on how they're designed. Um, I don't know if they will involve cybersecurity from the get-go. And even if they do, there's questions as to how effective or ineffective that could be. Potentially very. Um, but it's, it's hard to say without knowing really the specifics. There's a lot of interesting things when we talk about regulation and cryptocurrency, because um, when people are thinking about even just like the money laundering questions and um, the so-called kind of anonymity and privacy that that some mm-hmm. of the cryptocurrency projects imply or promise, we'll see if that's true. Because you've never seen something where you're building a um, you know allegedly immutable ledger of every transaction that has happened over time. So over time, will it actually get? easier using cryptocurrency than any other kind of currency to see where the money goes. Um, Like there's a level of transparency here, especially if we think about the degradation of cryptographic algorithms. Um, So, I mean, is it, is it a nightmare for law enforcement? Is it a a dream come true? Um, Time will tell, I guess. But um, if we think about, I mean, just to step back, I guess, to your, to your question around like, will regulation improve security Um, I don't think, I think it's too early to know, but I guess another thing too, is like, we have to think about, um, the relationship and the co-evolution between regulation and security in traditional finance. I mean, certainly there's a lot of regulations, um, compelling banks to do certain things around security. There's, and, and even, you know, payment card operators and all of these participants in the ecosystem have a different role and a different checkbox to fulfill. But as I mentioned earlier, um, some of these are just lessons learned and investments made to mitigate risk. So even in the absence of cybersecurity regulations, I think that the the long-term bets, you know, the, the organizations within the cryptocurrency space that actually intend to survive and actually do have um, a utopian ideal beyond a kind of speculative pump and dump scheme will quickly realize if they haven't already um, how foundational security will be to their survival because the code, you know, the code sits closer to the surface than in any other environment. You know, it was previously, you know, what, what are the biggest cybersecurity investments that are made? They're made in banks because it's at the end of the day, it's just ones and zeros that represent the ones and zeros in people's bank accounts. Um, But with cryptocurrency, this all sits so much closer to the surface that I mean, at some point, these lessons will have to be learned, right? Um, And I think that increasingly investors in this space, like venture capitalists and so on, are going to probably start demanding that we see things like security audits or um, different types of secure coding used or, uh, you know, various ways of introducing security assurance to these like promising projects that, you know, the code literally represents, you know, billions of dollars. Yeah. Is there an easy way now or today for folks out there who, like you said, might be interested in, you know, throwing a few thousand dollars into a cryptocurrency wallet or or maybe even, you know, having this as part of their investment portfolio um, to know which platforms and even currencies are more versus less secure and um, which are worthy of their money and which they should stay away from? <laughs> um 
to some extent, but largely no. I mean, it's it's largely kind of a patchwork kind of grassroots ecosystem whereby we see individual projects um, seek publicly reported security audits of what they're doing. And um, as I mentioned, you know, of the top 15 <laughs> um, big attacks that we've seen on cryptocurrencies, 11 of them were allegedly unaudited. Um, so seeing a security audit is some indication of, of something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an indication that they've made an investment, that they're willing to be transparent, um, that they've had at least some eyes on some of the code. But the code changes over time. You know, different security firms have different levels of capability, whether someone spends five days on something or 50 days or 150 days makes a big difference in terms of code review quality. Um, so there's a lot of things to consider. But I mean, I think right now it's it's really having to be kind of user driven to look for um, meaningful third party security reports as opposed to, um, you know, marketing hype and assumptions because of crypto magic. And that's a lot of that's a lot of burden to put on users. And I mean, you know, maybe it's off topic and maybe it's another conversation for another day, but like the security ecosystem in general is kind of cumbersome upon users now for all of the things. Like if I want to install a yoga app on my phone, you know, why do I have to be able to um, decompile the binaries to, to know how dangerous that is? That's a very weird thing that I'm hoping will change for consumer, you know, devices and services and, and things like that in general. But like cryptocurrency, I think it's, you know, so much worse because what's on the line is, often, you know, people's retirement and it, it's very serious. And yeah, I, I, it better not be retirement. I mean, come on. I hope not, but we've seen a lot of, a lot I was going to say to my listeners right now, do not put your retirement. Don't do that. Currency. Oh don't no, do that. don't do that. Don't no, do that. <laughs> that would not be smart. I think in some ways overhanging all of this conversation is this sort of bigger, kind of more existential question about cryptocurrencies, which is, you know, uh, there was this really funny tweet that somebody posted at the Super Bowl when there were all these like cryptocurrency ads and exchange, cryptocurrency exchange ads. And it was it was something along the lines of like, one of the reasons I have trouble accepting cryptocurrency as money is that there aren't commercials for money. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like, yeah, exactly. And sort of like, if we want to treat, if we want to accept it as money, then in some ways that means making it a lot more boring than it is right now and a lot less obviously volatile and speculative than it is right now. And I'm wondering if the process of actually making these platforms secure, auditable, you know, and so on is going to drain them of their life and vitality <laughs> and and what is drawing people speculatively to them. Um, yeah, there are no commercials for money because it's such an entrenched value, right? Like it's, it's such an entrenched, like culturally agreed upon thing across billions of people that like, yes, like this piece of paper that the US dollar is worth like a US dollar and maybe that fluctuates. <laughs> Well, you're, you're 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 raising a really interesting question, though, right? Because like the weird thing about cryptocurrency is that in some ways it's it's allowing people to invent money as if we don't already have that, and they get <laughs> to do it in in absence of a lot of the rules that we have around like inventing a money. And 
you know, has that been uh, like permitted as long as it has in the regulatory and legal environments in which we operate because it's technology and like the technology is like distraction glitter from the fact that people are just inventing their own money. And like for a while there, we're maybe inventing their own money and not yeah. paying appropriate taxes on it. Right. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I can see why people want to get on the hype train of, Hey, we're inventing our own money that is lacking a lot of the rules of actual money, but I don't think that that will persist. So like once the sparkle of the innovation of like blockchain, you know, web three, like all of the, the, the technologies that people find interesting and compelling for some reason, once the glitter of that wears off, are there actual underlying capabilities that provide unique value to the world in ways that are not realized with like, I don't know, instead of a permission blockchain or instead of a blockchain, like a permission database? Like, are we fundamentally able to do new computational tasks that matter? If so, then like you will get this skeptic on board right? Doing new computational tasks that matter and like enabling new things. And maybe you can, maybe there's cool things with micropayments. I don't know. If, if that were the case, then I think that's what ensures the long-term viability and success and growth in meaningful ways of these projects. But if it's just that people are, um, you know, mesmerized by this use of the technology or even just the buzzwords of the technology, yeah. then it's too bad that we're burning the rainforest for it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I laugh, but well, like, we, oh no. <laughs> yeah. We haven't even gotten into that issue and, and, and we probably don't have time in this podcast, but yes, you raise another really important issue, which is the environmental impact of, of all this, of all this mining. Um, you know, you and you and NCC group have, have talked a lot about the importance and the growing um, importance of, uh, supply chain security, and I think that's a, that's sort of lurking in the background here in a lot of our conversations today is is this very issue of, you know, what is going into these applications and these DeFi platforms. It, it seems like sort of a boil the ocean problem to say, well, just you know, improve the security of all of these platforms. But but are there ways that we can address this sort of underlying risk of just you know, poor quality code going into, you know, critical applications that are managing, you know, billions of dollars in transactions. Yeah, I mean, wow, it, it is a bit of a boil the ocean, but there's fundamentals that apply everywhere, right? The lessons we can learn for cryptocurrency are similar ones we'll learn for open, like critical open source projects and that we'll learn for enterprise software. The fundamentals that I think we're learning right now about supply chain security include, you know, understanding what is important, you know, understanding what are the critical pieces of this infrastructure and making, you know, thoughtful investments in improve, improving the secure coding of those things in the first place. You know, understanding the dependencies and the transitive dependencies, you know, up and down the chain and, and how far the ripples can go in terms of a vulnerability being exploited, causing problems in something that can that uses it or even something that uses something that uses something that uses it. Um, mm -hmm. So mapping, mapping transitive dependencies yeah. and really understanding it's like that XKCD where there's that one little box and <laughs> yeah. some guy in like the Midwest that's maintaining like a little open source project, but everything. Yeah. We, so we saw that, we saw that a lot with Log4j <laughs> that, that, uh, that cartoon had a, had a new life with Log4j, <laughs> but yes. Which yeah, is exactly. Of that. Yeah. But, but understand, like understanding those transitive dependencies is really important because we take it for granted now, understanding what are the critical projects and making um, measured investments in securing those and doing a security audit of those. I mean, like, you know, 
I'm part of the Open Source Security Foundation, so a lot of time we're thinking about this through the lens of open source, in part because um, you know, if we can all come together and secure the 100 or 200 or whatever most critical open source projects, we can think about all of the value that brings to so much of the world because those are really shared, common um, things of value, right? Um, and I think that we can think of kind of the cryptocurrency space and enterprise software spaces analogously about prioritizing what matters, thinking about the supply chain, thinking about development pipelines. Like that's something that I, I feel like is um, it's starting to have appreciation gained for it, but I mean, most, you know, I was talking to some of our security testers at NCC that have been looking specifically at, um, CICD pipelines. And I was asking, you know, how many of the CICD pipelines that you guys look at, um, could you compromise like to some, you know, extreme <laughs> degree, you know, remote mm -hmm. code execution or whatever, whatever mm -hmm. you want to set that bar mm -hmm. to be. Um, and they were like, oh, it's like well over 90%. It might be over 95%. Yeah. So like, and this is, you know, in some of the best companies in the world and some of the smallest and all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to secure development pipelines. So even if your developers are writing amazing code, maybe something is happening at some point in that chain um, that something can, you know, be inserted or compromised or whatever. And that's a problem. And even if your developers write really secure code and it's pu pushed through a super well secured development pipeline and makes it out into the world and it's deployed and it's good, um, maybe something that you've depended on has a flaw in it and we didn't mm -hmm. take that into account. So even mm -hmm. if you write perfect code in a perfect pipeline, your your software yeah. security may not be perfect. And like, yeah. I think right now we're just trying to unravel, like how do we solve these problems at scale when it's so like such a combinatorial explosion of vulns, vulns on vulns on vulns. And what do we do? Like, cause we're seeing that, you know, not only are there more and more vulnerabilities being discovered year over year, but there's more and more lines of code being written every single day. And um, there's, you know, per unit of code, um, whether you want to measure that in lines of code, I mean, there's a big debate there as to how we measure, you know, size of code, but um, however you want to measure it, you know, we're not seeing a decrease overall in number of vulnerabilities per like unit of code. Um, and then on top of that, the time to exploitation of vulnerabilities is getting really fast. So, you know, a couple of years ago, it might have taken a month and a half between the time that a, a, a vendor releases a patch and the time at which we start seeing exploitation in the wild. And now many firms have measured this to be down to a couple of days, three or four days. And that's, um, you know, aligns very well with what we see within our own threat intelligence. So um, we have like these increasing phones, increasing ecosystem complexity, um, more and more being on the line and faster and faster time to exploitation. So there are paradigm shifts that need to happen in our industry. And like, we can look at this through the cryptocurrency lens. I guess that's interesting because the code is really close to the surface and the attacks are really high profile. And you can instantly see, you know, it's not just a vuln, it's like half a billion dollars gone. And suddenly you can measure it in a way that we couldn't before. But really this is just reflecting, you know, the broader ecosystem of unsolved problems where maybe we need to think differently about how some of these things are addressed. And I think that the the great learnings of the you know i won't name them specifically companies with major supply chain attacks over the last couple of years i mean one of the great things for the industry is that we've started to step back and look at the bigger picture and maybe we care more about software provenance maybe we care more about security auditing um and and i think that these things can make real structural differences in the long term so that's something that's that's very hopeful for me jennifer Burnick. 
who is Senior Vice President and Global Head of Research at NCC Group. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It's been great having you. Thank you so much for having me. Jennifer Fernick is the Senior Vice President and Global Head of Research at NCC Group. She's also a founding Governing Board and Technical Advisory Committee member of the Open Source Security Foundation and was here talking to us about the security risks in decentralized finance, or DeFi. 